Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's gorgeous conversation is with what I would consider to be the greatest ultra runner on the planet, Zach Bitter. You can see him on Rogan's podcast. Um, you can see him here in a, the running world. I'm sure you absolutely know him. If you're in the endurance world or athletic world in general, he is someone that uh, is an inspiring figure, very intelligent athlete, very committed, and just a well-rounded, rad human being. So I'm very excited to get to share his perspective on life, on the mind-body relationship, on uh, athletics, endurance, and a lot more. So I think you guys are going to get a ton out of this conversation. I'm so excited that uh, y'all are tuning in. I want to take a moment and thank our sponsor, Inside Tracker, for supporting this podcast. If you feel overwhelmed and confused by all the different diets, all the different viewpoints on nutrition, and all the different advice you're getting from thousands of health influencers you follow on Instagram or all the podcasts you listen to, I have something very important to share with you. You don't need to feel overwhelmed or confused anymore. Inside Tracker helps you optimize your body using science and technology to deliver ultra personalized guidance. They tell you what you need to do and specifically why. This is amazing because they realize that your body is unique and nutrition and fitness plan should be as well. They aren't copy and pasting plans. They're analyzing your blood, DNA, and habits to develop a plan that will set you up for ultimate success. No more questioning what you should or shouldn't be eating and doing. And finally, you can get some concrete answers for what is right for your body. Plus, Inside Tracker helps you track your progress and adjust your plan as needed based on real-time feedback from your body. Pretty cool shit, right? If you're ready to get serious about taking your health, fitness, and nutrition to the next level, don't even think twice about trying out Inside Tracker. It is hands down the best way to get an accurate and effective plan based on your own body. You can start your plan by getting 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. All you have to do is head over to insidetracker.com/align. That's 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store when you go over to insidetracker.com forward slash ally. I also would like to take a moment and thank our sponsor, Bio Optimizers, for supporting this podcast. When I talk about blood sugar, a lot of people tune out because they think it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic everybody needs to understand. One of the big keys to optimal health is to have balanced blood sugar. But what happens when you eat a donut? Your pancreas releases insulin, which tells your body there is plenty of energy, so now is the time to store fat. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter whether you eat a donut or drink a glass of orange juice, low fiber processed carbohydrates from crackers to chips to cookies to juice all have a similar effect on blood sugar. When you take in a lot of carbs too quickly, without much fiber or fat to slow down absorption, you could experience what we call a sugar crash, which leads to low energy, brain fog, and weight gain. So how do you lower your blood sugar levels to avoid storing fat as body fat? You wanna do your best to reduce your intake of processed carbohydrates and make sure that you eat fat, protein, fiber, and greens at most meals. But none of us are perfect. We all cheat sometimes, so it just makes sense to have a way to maintain healthy blood sugar day in, day out, even if you have an off day, right? That's why I recommend a product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough by Bio Optimizers. 
This easy to take supplement is the result of numerous tests to find the absolute best formula for maintaining healthy blood sugar. In fact, BioOptimizers went through five different formulations before landing on this one. Blood Sugar Breakthrough works to safely lower blood sugar after meals so that you can maintain a healthy weight and redirect carbs to your muscles where they can be burned for energy. This means you'll avoid the worst effects of high blood sugar, like weight gain, while enjoying more stable energy, mental clarity, and fewer cravings. For an exclusive offer for my listeners only, just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health/align and save 10% with the code ALIGN10. I am very much looking forward to you guys trying Blood Sugar Breakthrough. I think it's an excellent product and I think you will not be disappointed. So for 10% off, jump over to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health slash align and your exclusive 10% discount will already be applied by using that URL. I'd also like to thank Eaton Hemp for supporting this podcast. I am a major fan of hemp products in general, and specifically Eaton Hemp. Did you know unhold hemp seeds contain omega-3s and omega-6s at a perfect ratio of one to three, which is what is ideal for our bodies. They are the only plant-based source with this ideal ratio. Omegas are fatty acids that can help your body in positive ways, but when you consume more omega-6 than omega-3, you trigger inflammation and even weight gain. Omega-6s are found in the American diet in excess that's why we need to intentionally eat foods that are higher in omega-3 and ideally have that perfect ratio. Although most hemp seeds you find on shelves are hulled, that's why I love eating hemp's unhulled toasted hemp seeds. But you don't just want to buy any hemp seed, whether it's unhulled or not. It's extremely important for it to be USDA certified organic. And hemp is a phytoremediation plant, so it sucks up whatever is in the soil that it's grown in. This includes the good and the bad. Eaton Hemp is proudly USDA organic and third-party lab tested, so you can rest assured it is grown in the finest soil free of toxins, pesticides, and heavy metals. Plus, it's also non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and keto-friendly. Best part is that they have an absolutely delicious taste. They have two different flavors, maple cinnamon and pink Himalayan sea salt. I love them both very much so actually. I love using the maple cinnamon to add onto smoothies, to add a nice crunch, and I love using the pink Himalayan sea salt to add a crunch to my salads. Grab your own bag now by heading over to eatonhemp.com slash align. That's E-A-T-O-N-H-E-M-P.com forward slash align and use code align for 20% off. Again, that's eatonhemp.com slash align, E-A-T-O-N-H-E-M-P.com forward slash align for 20% off of your purchase. Plus, if you do not like your product, they give you a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you got nothing to lose and you got your whole omega-3-6 ratio situation to garner from this excellent product. Um, I really love these guys a lot. I put them on salads and smoothies, as I mentioned, and I think you guys are gonna like them as well. Jump over to eatonhemp.com slash alive. All right, here we go to Zipolcast. All right, Dr. Zach, can you tell me about your, your breakfast? Breakfast, uh, let's see, this morning... Actually, this morning was just coffee and electrolytes, Ooh. so I took it easy. You taking it easy? Yeah. Uh-huh. Is that common? Not too common. Maybe a little bit more when I'm training less, so like off-season or 
injury or just lower training volume in general. Sometimes I'll bypass breakfast, but I kind of structure normally my nutrition around like kind of two main meals during the day is kind of usually where I feel the best. And then training load will kind of dictate how much more I add to it, more or less, is how kind of how it works. But I got a little interested on doing some like 24-hour fast stuff just to play around with that. But I haven't done a whole lot of that historically just because of training load and stuff. But I like to take advantage of opportunities when they present themselves. So if I'm not burning as many calories, it's like probably the best time to maybe play around with something like that. Yeah. Do you think that you're a freak of, um, of nature or do you think anyone can do what you you do to some degree obviously yeah. you have body type and there's like a perfect storm of any person lebron james right also is built like you know genetically built like lebron james right yeah i would never be a lebron james you're not going to be LeBron. yes <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, that's what i'm trying to say no it's a, it's a really good question because i think people think that because running 100 miles or you know what other ultra marathon distance is so far from most people's kind of thought process they wonder about that it's like do you train a lot to do that or do you just are you good at running so to speak and i think anyone can do ultra marathons i think people probably build it up a lot more than it actually is in mm. terms of like just getting it done but when it comes to like doing it at a specific level then there's probably going to be a little bit of like genetic factor there there's going to be body types that are probably a little more conducive to do well at it and then there's going to be mindsets too i think that are going to play a big role especially in this sport because you bring the intensity as low as it is for even a really fast, say, 100-mile race. It's not a pace that is like so ferocious that people can't wrap their head around it. So then you kind of open the door for, I think, a lot of people maybe otherwise would have ruled themselves out. And then if they can get their headspace right, do the amount of work required and stay injury-free and kind of dial all those things in, I think there's a lot of opportunity yeah. with it versus, say, like an NBA <laughs> career or something like that. <clears throat> right. And then I think that perhaps an issue within that, because it, it is the barrier to entry is quite low mm -hmm. to go and jog. Yeah, yeah. Most people can like go and kind of get mm -hmm. a jog in and then pushing their the limits with that. And I'd be curious your perspective on this. There's such a massive foundational mechanical component to it mm -hmm. to push the human body. Like our mind can go beyond the physical. Mm -hmm. Most of us are way limited by the mind. Yeah. But we can p keep on pushing through even when the nuts and the bolts and the angles aren't really oriented right. in the best fashion. I believe, isn't running, like statistically, you have the highest likelihood of getting injured if you're a, a runner? Yeah, I wouldn't doubt that. I mean, it seems like every runner I've ever spoken to, it's not a question of if they've gotten injured or it's when and how and mm -hmm. or if they haven't, when will it happen? Right. <laughs> so, And it is kind of, I think part of it is just the draw, especially with ultra marathon, where you get to, there's so much involved in it it's not as defined maybe i mean the act of running is pretty defined but the the target is maybe very very wide reaching whereas if we were to say like you know a soccer game or a football game or a basketball game you got these kind of like fairly defined borders more or less you have your court you have all that stuff and you know you fine tune yourself for that 60 minutes or whatever it is Whereas with running, you can kind of like, oh, I'm going to just, you know, start running. You go and run a few miles and then all of a sudden you do a 5K and then you get excited by that. Maybe then you do a 10K and next thing you know it, you're signing up for a 50 mile race or something like that. And you can kind of like put yourself in a position where you don't know if your body's going to be able to tolerate it. Think of that kind of relative uncertainty or that maybe aggressiveness in some cases or overzealousness can put you in a position to get hurt. And I mean, everyone kind of can find themselves in that position too. There's something weird about running too, I think where you get this, oh, I know that 
it says you shouldn't do this, but I'll get away with it. And then you go and you train a little too hard for something, or you try to squeeze in an extra workout or yep. you know, do something new that you weren't quite ready for. And then all of a sudden you wake up the next morning, oh, why does that hurt differently? <laughs> yeah. I wonder if you, from your perspective, what are the foundational bullet points for a person to go out and run a marathon? Mm-hmm. If me- mechanically speaking mechanically speaking, like who should not do that <laughs> and if they're a person that's in that category of should not mm-hmm. you know should you know should's an ugly word but what do they need, to, they need to, to build do? themselves up to the point that they're not going to damage their knees or their mm-hmm. you know what have you like what's the what's the baseline to be able to go long distances yeah i think like your form and mechanics are important and some folks are going to just be a little more probably naturally uh, steered towards having a good mechanical form and that's going to put them in a position to be probably less injury prone. Some of them just might just be different people, like genetics. Like, and this maybe is a little bit of your first question too. Like, uh, one of my advantages perhaps has been, I've been relatively non-prone to injuries over my career. So I've right. been able to build a lot of foundation. So for like a marathon, I think if they're going to want to do it right is work on kind of form and mechanic. And I like to kind of focus on more or less kind of a four point setup of you have like your forward lean, which is maybe a little people are thinking like a little higher up in the body there. That's going to put you in a position to, as you're kind of falling forward, you're catching yourself versus thinking of yourself as like propelling yourself. And then you're going to be more likely to have a situation where your foot is planting on the ground underneath kind of like your bent knee. So you're actually using your legs as like a three foot spring or absorber, shock absorber. You're going to have impact forces no matter what you do. The question is where those impact forces going to go and are they going to go in the spot where your body's capable of tolerating them or are they going to end up in a spot that's going to, you know, break down easier or wasn't designed to to tolerate that sort of an impact. And I think that's where a lot of the running injuries come is people will find themselves in improper mechanics and now also in the impact forces that their legs was going to absorb properly is ending up in their knees and their hips and things like that. Yep. So other things like your cadence, like how fast is your foot kind of striking the ground per minute? That's something that people can focus on to try to make it less likely for their foot to get out in front of their knee where you're going to have some of those impact forces end up in the wrong spot. You know, like your arm drive too. People don't often think of arms as, as running, but You'll, you'll see it, especially at like high school cross country meets or track meets where, you know, a kid will be coming down to the finish, like swing your arms, swing your arms. And I like to think that as being kind of like half true, like you want hmm. your arms to pop back, but you want them to be compressed and tight and you want them to kind of just fall forward. Cause that's going to kind of put you in a position to keep that forward lean, keep that chest out, yep. keep you in a position where you're, like I said before, you're landing in a way where those impact forces are ending up in a way where your body can tolerate it. And then from there, it's just about kind of stress recovery, right? Like when you think people get excited with things and they want to get to that end goal quick. So they sometimes try to put the fast forward button on it. And sometimes that means running more than they should at 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 one time. I like to call this micro stressing with my coaching clients. It doesn't matter what your friend's doing or it doesn't matter what you want to do. Well, it does matter what you want to do in a year or two, but you want to ultimately micro stress yourself enough where you're creating a small stress response with your body, but giving yourself the time to recover from that and then do it again at maybe a little more aggressive level and then get recovered from that and continue that process on. Mm. So if someone follows that kind of framework, then I think a marathon is fine regardless of whether, so then maybe it's not a should or shouldn't, it's more of like, where are you at? What's your timeline? And is the timeline appropriate from where you're at to get to there? Yep. And then what's your goal too? I mean, some people just want to finish a marathon. So if you're like, I'm, I want to finish it. I don't care if it takes me five or six hours, I'll walk nine tenths of it. Then maybe they should. But if you're someone who should be taking that approach for their first marathon and decides, I want to run the whole thing. I want to break four hours. 
in order to do that, I've got to take a bunch of risks. Then maybe you're not someone who should be doing it uh, uh, at that point in time. Yeah, I want to get into the mental mm-hmm. aspects of it, but there's I still want to hone in on a few of the mechanical parts. Sure. In relation to, I think something that's highly contentious would be how the foot strikes the ground. Mm-hmm. There's heel striking, and there's mm-hmm. you know there's like the Nike shoes that raise you up, yeah. and there's <laughs> you know you're barefoot running. Obviously, you're going to be up you know more on the on the ball of the foot, which mm-hmm. you know seems like that's of support mm-hmm. to the body. But then there's the you know if you're running long distance, you have the big padded space shoes and it's yeah. like this. so there's i think there's there's it's such a, a varied conversation of how the foot and then if you if you were to compare the best runners in the world they're all going to have a slightly different foot strike mm-hmm. yep yeah and i think uh so there's going to be some uniqueness from one person to the next as to like where i mean because you might you might have someone who's got one leg that's slightly longer than the other mm-hmm. and i think actually most people probably do have a slight variance it just depends on by how much and you know that can maybe depend a little bit about how your mechanic would look compared to maybe that perfect symmetrical position and, it, and it's also probably somewhat of a a thing where you get to the best in the world at like the Olympic marathon, those folks may be a little more symmetrical than the average person. And maybe that's partly why they're just more efficient. But in terms of like the foot strike thing, I think you're hitting on a really cool topic, I think, because uh, when I first started looking at this, I was thinking I kind of went maybe a little more straight to the point point. thought, okay, heel striking is bad. Forefoot, midfoot striking is good. And then you kind of look at it a little further. It's like, oh, well, I mean, technically you can strike in the back half of your foot and still have it come down underneath that bent knee and have your body kind of absorb those impacts the way it will optimally do that. It's pretty rare, I would say, for that to be the case. And most people who are quote-unquote heel striking are probably overstriding and they're reaching out and they're actually having their foot make impact well out in front of their knee. And that's probably going to lead to issues at some point in time. Yep. So that I would say, if you have that, you might want to correct that through increasing your cadence, changing your footwear, or just looking at like maybe where there's some imbalances or weaknesses uh, that can be addressed. So maybe it would help with that. I haven't seen a great reason as to why you would want an elevated heel in your shoe outside of you got used to that. Yep. And now all of a sudden the range of motion in your foot doesn't accommodate an actual flat platform yeah. or Olympic weightlifting. Right. You're yeah. Yeah. Something, you're you know, exactly. snatching a bunch of weight over your head mm-hmm. and squatting all the way down. Yeah. Like, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. And I think like any of that stuff is more of a question of, okay, you're wearing a shoe that has this big heel lift in it um, for running anyway. And you may need that right now because you got used to that. But I think most people would benefit in bringing that down or getting like re-strengthening or re-elongating that Achilles tendon. Mm-hmm. So it has that full range of motion and isn't going to be in a position where it needs to stay kind of more compressed all the time. But that might take some time. It's like anything, I like to look at it from the lens of like, if I break my arm and put a cast on it, that cast is good. I want that cast there while my arm's broken so I don't you know have it like set wrong. But once that arm is healed, I want to take that cast off and gradually get it strong again. Yep. Shoes are kind of the same way you know, it's kind of a cast on your foot. So you have a big built up pair of shoes, high lift and all that stuff. It's going to work your body a little differently. Certain muscles are going to get atrophied or, or spared from the, the rigors of what would be similar to like a more barefoot style of running. So if that person decides, hey, I want to be a little more efficient and use less of a built up product, uh, that might be a good move for them, but they're going to want to treat it as if they had like, you know, an atrophied foot muscle and, you know, let that catch up rather than 
trying to expose that area of their body to what the rest of their body's already used to and has already been able to tolerate from their previous training. And, yeah. and that might just take some time and some, some focus on that. Yeah. I'm so grateful to be having this conversation with you. Yeah. You can like read about these things and all that, but to have someone that's actually really putting themselves through it the way that you have, it's, I, I just, mm -hmm. I appreciate it. One of the things that's, that you pointed out is with, with the heel striking, when, when you're bringing the foot out in front, you're literally breaking yourself, mm -hmm. not breaking, like breaking down, well, maybe breaking down, but you're literally like, you're putting a post out in front of you and you're creating all yeah. this friction every time you're doing it, which doesn't, you know, logically mechanically it just doesn't it's not doesn't make any sense so within that what are your thoughts on like minimalist shoes compared to the raised heel shoes where now minimalist shoes now you you have to be on the front yeah and then i wonder if you are you familiar with the pose method nicholas romanoff yeah. mm -hmm. where he's like having people run on ice and all that yeah. stuff uh -huh. and so the kind of the crossover for that is like okay if you're barefoot you have to run in this way mm -hmm. and then you know so what are, you, what are your thoughts of transitioning over into barefoot minimalist shoes? Is it like a safe thing for everyone just to jump into that? Yeah. So this was actually, this is a really interesting topic because the running world actually did a kind of almost population case study of this. <laughs> when the minimalist movement kind of came through with like the onset of Born to Run, uh, a lot of folks looked at that and was like, well, that makes perfect sense. And it does. It makes perfect sense. It's like if your body's in alignment, if things are working more uniform and the way it quote unquote should, then you know, you're going to have a better outcome. But if uh, someone has been in a built-up shoe their entire life, it's like, where is the starting point for that? Mm -hmm. So what happened, and I think this is probably a kind of a trend for Americans just in general is, oh, that's cool. I really like that. I'm going to throw away my, my support shoes and throw in a pair of like minimalist shoes or actually run barefoot. And it would be like, if I decided I want to bench press 400 pounds, great, but don't go in the gym today and put 400 pounds on the bench press and yep. try to do it right away. Yep. It's kind of the same thing. And so a lot of people hurt their feet and got issues from jumping into that, like right out of the gate. You know, it's easy for us to just say like, okay, well that didn't work because so-and-so got hurt. I hate to put blame on people, but like to a degree, you kind of hurt yourself if you're jumping in ahead of it. Yep. And some of it's just lack of knowledge or we didn't necessarily have a good kind of launching point for people who had never looked into this before outside of the marketing that came along with like the minimalist movement and stuff like that. And so it's a, it gets a little kind of fuzzy with that. But to get back to your question, I mean, I, I went through this myself where I, I read Born to Run. I looked into some of that stuff, natural running and things. And I, I was like, this is something that's going to be good for my long-term health, like especially with lower leg strength and things like that. And I wanted to kind of get myself out of a shoe that was built up in the heel and get myself able to run in something that's a little more like low profile firm so that I would be able to kind of access that sort of footwear, that sort of like lower leg strength in my running. So I spent probably like six months to 12 months kind of transitioning from a traditional running shoe down to like where I was running almost exclusively in minimal shoes. Then once I kind of got my lower legs pretty strong from that and pretty resilient from that and probably improve some form along the way. I started looking at, okay, well, where is this fit in, in position with just like my goals as an athlete from a performance standpoint? And then it was like kind of interesting to me because I was, I looked at is like, I think if I can maintain the proper form and mechanics, how do I use a shoe that maybe is got a little more structure to it or a little more cushion to it alongside low profile? 
to be able to kind of push myself a little further than what my body would naturally be able to do. Yeah. And this is just kind of like development in sport. You see it in all of it where like technology enters the realm where like I can do so, my body can take me so far. And then if I put on a specific product, can I eke out an extra 10%? And I think that's footwear kind of works the same way or even like inserts maybe. I don't think inserts in most cases are going to be beneficial for a person permanently. But if it's a scenario where I'm running 100 miles and I get a lot of like, I, I can overshoot my normal stress tolerance by throwing an insert in at the end of a race just to get me through it or maybe I bust up my ankle and I can push through training with an insert to get to a race uh, by putting an insert in, but then eventually taking it back out and kind of getting that strength and mobility back in that area. I think there's these things that should be looked at as tools versus kind of like, this is your reality for the rest of your life. Yeah. So then I just kind of look at it as kind of like, I have like a shoe quiver where like, I've got these low profile minimalist shoes that I'm going to use often enough to keep that strength there, keep that mechanic stuff firm and kind of like in there. And then I've got some more cushion shoes that are going to be something I can use if I'm just peaking for a race and my volume and training is going to be higher than what it typically would be. I have an option for that. So like an example, that would be, I do some hard workouts in a lower profile pair of shoes. And then I've got an easy run scheduled on, on my training for the next day. And when I wake up, my, my feet are sore, my calves are sore, my lower legs are kind of a little beat up. Upper legs are more or less fine. I might go for like a balanced cushioned shoe that is going to still have that flat platform like a minimalist shoe would, but also have a little bit of cushion to, you know, save my lower legs that are a little beat up from previous workouts from having that impact, that direct impact. And then it's just more of like a shoe quiver or a tool versus an all or nothing type of an approach. Yeah. Perhaps the last of somewhat mechanically based questions. Like if you're doing a long run and this mm-hmm. is, I'm just pulling this, I had a conversation with the guy, Sanjay Raul, who did the 3,100 run and become yeah. thing. Uh-huh. And that was, it was very like spiritual mind, body, Native American, yeah. you know, your feet are drumming the earth, yeah. you're connecting with the father sky and all that. But a major thing with that, with 3,100 mile race was you need to be able to relax and find ease and go mm-hmm. into this like meditative space. Whereas oh, a lot yeah. of like, maybe like st- strong men, for example, you see a big bodybuilding guy, mm-hmm. they can do sometimes cool stuff for a short amount of time yeah. and then they're burnt. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing something for a hundred miles, then it's like, I'd imagine you'd have to kind of internally go in and find those places of, of, of tension where mm-hmm. you're kind of like spending more energy than is necessary mm-hmm. and find a way to relax into that. I would think, I have no idea, I've never done anything like this, but I, I just wonder if that's a thing for you. Yeah, this is perfect. I think this is, I think this actually can like translate into the physical and mental side of it. Yeah. So there's the physical where I think like a lot of times you'll see, especially as like a run progresses, or if you're overreaching in your training a little bit, things get tight, things get tense, and you find yourself breaking form because of that. And you can benefit a lot from thinking about, like, am I running with my shoulders up tight because right. of something? And, and how do I like breathe differently to relax or just focus on that and be present enough to recognize that that's happening and then course correct? The body's interesting with that because I think like if something is starting to kind of fatigue a little bit, it can be easy to feel better by gravitating to an unnatural position. Mm. And even though that feels better in the moment, it may not be as efficient. Well, it likely won't be as efficient. And it may be more damaging long-term if you let it go for long enough. Just that thought process of being relaxed is going to kind of put you in a position to relax your body in a way where you find yourself in that, that position or that form and technique that is going to be a little more natural for, for your running. And then the mental side that I think you were more like, 
probing about was is such an important thing, especially with ultra marathon running, because it's so slow because it has to be because you you run 100 miles or in your friend's case, 3,100 miles. It's like you probably can't slow down enough to make that sustainable almost in some case. So you have to be relaxed so that you're not burning yourself out mentally. And this is something I've learned a lot more about, a lot from trial and error, a lot from just talking to other folks and just trying to like learn from like what works for other people and what works for me is like, how do you get yourself in a position where you're about to run a hundred miles? Maybe you have some really high goals with it, which is going to induce anxiety and nervousness and things which are going to be natural responses but how do you kind of keep those in control enough so that your brain doesn't start spinning so fast that by the time you get to the point in the race where you really need to focus that you're all mentally burnt out yep and i think like there's different ways to kind of practice that a few things that i've done is just like how do i take my training to a different level in the sense where i'm not just training my body to be ready to run 100 miles but i'm training my mind to be able to process 100 miles in a way that's sustainable just like i'm going to be pacing myself physically to make it sustainable and some of it coincides where if you do the right work and you trust your training that's going to ease your mind a little bit because you can convince yourself easier that i'm ready for this this is something i can do but then the next piece of the puzzle is kind of putting the strategy down for your mind as to how to process it throughout the course of it too hmm. And as you get further in races, it probably gets more complex. I haven't done anything that's past a, a full day. So like you start getting into these multi-day things, it just gets a little more complex because now you're dealing with, I have to worry about in the moment, but there's also going to be this point in time two weeks from now where who knows where I'm going to be and I have to manage my mind to be ready for that now. Yep. But either way, you want to kind of have that relaxed state of mind. So you're not, I like to call it mental energy. Like You have a fuel tank that is both physical and mental you can spend that kind of currency throughout the course of an event. So if I'm finding myself just in a frenzy worrying about mile 90 at mile 30 and I'm burning mental energy doing that, then I'm going to get to that point with an empty mental tank. And then when the going gets tough, I'm not going to push through it. Yep. And one thing I've learned with ultra marathoning too is one of the more exciting things about it and just eye-opening kind of like self-exposing things is you get to these races every once in a while where everything does work well. You kind of had the physical stuff dialed in, you had the mental stuff dialed in, and you push past a couple barriers that historically would have kind of caused you to either like maintain versus progress or slow down versus maintain. Then you finish that and it feels great. You're like, wow, I had these breakthroughs. But then if you really self-reflect, you think, well, what about that race last year where I got to that point and didn't do it? Was that because I couldn't then or was that because I hadn't managed my mental energy right? I hadn't mm -hmm. viewed it in the right way? So you also have to kind of look at it as you know a, a long-term learning process of kind of getting to that point as well. But it's interesting. I think it's all part of it. And I think it's something that has reshaped the view of the sport for me it wasn't a reason I got into this sport. It wasn't something I was aware of when I got into this sport. But my goals have shifted more towards that sort of stuff to like, in terms of just fulfillment from it too, because there'll be a day where I'm no longer competitive at ultra marathoning. There may be a day I don't do them anymore and focus my energies on something else. So then at that point in time, you know, what is the value of what I did in the past to me and to others? And to some of it is just like kind of having this like experience where you felt like, you learn that stuff along the way and looking at the spots where you weren't able to do that as kind of little like lessons that you picked up on and, and built off of. And, and that's kind of where I think the value in the sport is, or for me anyway, one of the big value pieces of the process as a whole. Yeah. There's, have you ever done any free diving? No, huh? 
So in freediving, the mental element is obviously massive because uh-huh. most people can comfortably hold their breath for at least a couple minutes. Right. You mm-hmm. know, and if you do any kind of techniques, you know, breathe ups or hyperventilation, you'll do like three to four minutes. Like uh-huh. we can all hold our breath. Yeah. You know, the idea that you're going to pass out mm-hmm. upon those first contractions, like you're not even close. Uh-huh. You know, so it's that mental element where if you can calm that, then all of a sudden those involuntary contractions start to calm down. And you're like, okay, I'm fine. I'm uh-huh. fine. I'm fine. And talking with, with free, I've done very limited free diving and did a little bit in, in Tulum recently, but talking with free divers, that mental element, it literally, it's like the seed of an idea can start to gobble up your oxygen, yes. which is fucking brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so it's like, and, and with free diving, it's like, okay, you're down for, you know, a couple minutes or a few minutes or, you know, if you're beating a record, it's still, you know, some minutes. Mm-hmm. Whereas with a hundred mile race, it's scientifically, it's a, hard, a lot harder to measure all those variables. But I have a feeling that that same lesson that's very apparent in free diving also exists when you're doing something for, you know, 12 hours. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that too. Cause I'm, so terribly inexperienced at holding my breath that I guarantee you I'd probably be the equivalent of someone who's never run before who's deciding to run a race where I'm going to have all these limitations where at 30 seconds under the water, I'm like, okay, I got to come up. This is over. And, right. But really, yeah. like you said, I could probably, if I had to, if someone held me under there and said, you know, you're down there for two minutes, I'm going to find a way to hold my breath for two minutes yeah. most likely. And so. you might discover yourself in right. quotations. You right. might find this I, I would thing have you come to. out and it's like a rite of passage in a way of like, oh, I'm uh-huh. stronger than I thought. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably a really good parallel too. And yeah, and I, run, running's maybe just a little more of a, I, I don't want to say friendly way of exploring that that arena, but to a degree it is because the consequence in your mind is more, well, if I don't succeed, I stop running and then I'm right physically fine the next day whereas call in your my mind, buddy they pick me up i'm a little yeah. embarrassed yeah. yeah you get a big ego hit but maybe not necessarily i swallowed a gallon of water to learn this lesson yeah. Yeah. but yeah that is interesting though because i i probably know just enough to be dangerous about breath holding but i have followed some of that stuff for a while where it is interesting to see like where those blocks are in your mind versus where what you can actually do physically even without any training and you do wonder about the physical elements of running how much of that is also there where obviously if you overdo yourself and get injured you know there's you can probably push through that in the day of but you might pay for it afterwards a little bit but there's probably the same type of limitation have you had in injuries in quotations or your body signaling that you are injured during how many hundred mile races have you done? That's a good question. I haven't really kept track. <laughs> I've done probably, I think, 70 like Jeez. plus organized ultra marathons. Okay. If you start, most people are going to define an ultra marathon as 50 kilometers or further. And I've done 100 plus, probably 50K plus runs just outside for training purposes too. So it probably just depends how you look at it. All right. 100 milers though, I think I'm probably maybe a dozen or so. Okay. In the, the time frame of you doing your 100 plus long distance runs, have you had perceived injuries or physical breakdowns that then you moved through and suddenly it was like, oh, that's just not there anymore. I thought I, I was going to have to saw my leg off yeah <laughs> and you know on mile 31 and now on mile 35 i feel completely great yeah not so much injuries you know i've had things where perceived pain yeah okay so that for sure and that's actually i don't think there's any way around that i think that's going to happen to you in mm. a hundred mile race no matter what i don't think anyone regardless how fit or unfit they are going in is going to get to a point where i felt physically exactly the way i should for 100 miles i think it's more likely going to be at mile 40, 
I feel like if I progressively keep going this direction, there's no way I can do it. And then you almost laugh at yourself five miles later because you feel better than you did 10 miles before. Yeah. Which is a really interesting part of the sport. And then you enter that mental side of thing again too. So you get to that point where you're like, I might be at a spot where I can't push any harder or I need to slow down or I need to drop out even. And you decide, well, I'm going to give it another 15 minutes. And then 15 minutes later, you're you know feeling better than you had all day. Though, you know, the, my first lesson with that, or my first memorable one anyway, was in 2013, I was doing, it was actually my second completed 100 miler. And I would say it was on a 400 meter track. I went there, I got invited to this event called the Desert Salsa's Track Invitational. And essentially you run as fast as you can for 100 miles and is about as controlled environment as you can get. And I went there with the goal of breaking the American record for 100 miles, just based off one of my 50 mile kind of flat times. I thought, you know, I'd run like five hours and 12 minutes for 50 miles earlier that year. So I was thinking to myself, the American record time was just like a few seconds under 12 hours. It's like, well, if I can do 50 and 512, I could slow down like over 30 minutes and then do it again. It made sense in my mind. I don't know if that was smart or not at the time, but I got to mile 90. And I had all access to information. You pass the timing mat, you can see your split. I remember looking at the, the, my splits for like the last few laps, thinking to myself, I'm on American record pace. I can sustain this lap pace, but I cannot go a second per lap faster. There's just no way. Physically, I can't. I can maintain, but I can't go faster. And I was pretty new to the sport and very ignorant about like what was available or what was out there. And one of the race directors came up to me 90 miles into this race and said, when you hit 100 miles, if you're going the same pace as you are now, you're going to have some time left before you get to 12 hours. And if you keep going at that pace, there's a 12-hour world record that you're on pace of breaking. And I hadn't even I wasn't even aware of a 12-hour world record at the time. I just was thinking that there's this 100-mile record, American record I'm going for. And when he told me that, my brain switched from what I had been thinking about all day, that 100-mile American record to oh, I need to run for, you know, it was only like an extra 13 minutes or something like that. So it wasn't super crazy to think like, well, I'll stay out here for 12 hours. But my brain switched to this new goal, this new exciting thing that was also available on top of what I was also out there for. And I started running like four seconds per lap faster mm-hmm. from there going on in. It was just like, that was the biggest, most apparent sign of kind of that mental or that that mental limitation thing that we've kind of been talking about as to how much of that is self-imposed versus just not being open-minded enough to like let other things enter and give you reason to think, why can't I go a little bit faster yeah. or, and ask those questions? I want to take a moment and discuss one of my favorite supplements. That supplement is magnesium. Listen up. If you're having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, one of the best things you can possibly do is start getting enough magnesium. Don't waste money on fancy and unnecessary supplements and also don't normalize sleeping poorly. You deserve to get a good night's sleep regularly. And literally all you need in order to do so is some magnesium. Also, I'd recommend blacking your room out, getting the temperature down around like 68, 69 degrees or so. Using some lavender oil is a nice thing. Meditation, reducing blue light before you go to bed. All those are very helpful as well. I recently had a online podcast listener message me after grabbing some magnesium breakthrough from BioOptimizers last week to say that on the first night of taking Magnesium Breakthrough, his deep sleep jumped up to two hours, which had been his highest reading so far from his Aura Ring. But please do not run to the store and buy the first Magnesium supplement you find. Most Magnesium supplements use only the two cheapest synthetic forms. And since they're not full spectrum, they won't fix your Magnesium deficiency or help you sleep better. 
there's actually seven unique forms of magnesium, and you must get all of them if you want to experience its calming, sleep-enhancing effects. That's why I recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by BioOptimizers. Simply take two capsules before you go to bed, and you'll be amazed by how much better your sleep is and how much more rested you feel when you wake up. For an exclusive offer for my listeners only, go to magbreakthrough.com slash alignpodcast. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H dot com slash alignpodcast. Use the Align 10 code during checkout to save 10%. Again, that's an exclusive offer for my listeners only. You can go to magbreakthrough.com slash alignpodcast and use the Align 10 code at checkout. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, Hone, for supporting this podcast. If you drink too much coffee or you experience negative effects from coffee, I highly recommend trying out Hone. This is a blend of ceremonial grade matcha, USDA organic cordyceps, and methylated vitamin B12 and B6 that not only brings you the same energy as coffee, but the energy is longer lasting. Why drink matcha in the first place? Every serving boasts over 20 milligrams of L-theanine and 60 milligrams of antioxidants. This is equivalent to over 137 times the amount found in infused used green teas and 116 times the amount found in a serving of acai berries. L-theanine helps to reduce stress, anxiety, and depression and also boosts concentration. And antioxidants help protect you from free radicals, helping to reduce your signs of aging and antioxidants also help keep your immune system thriving. Not only are you getting a boost of sustainable energy, but you're also getting a wide array of health benefits. My favorite way to drink hone is by mixing it with some hot water and full fat coconut milk for a delicious matcha latte. I'll typically drink this in place of a second cup of coffee and have found my energy levels to be higher than ever before. You can get longer lasting energy plus reduce your stress and anxiety with hone blends now by heading over to honeblends.com and use a line at checkout for 30% off of your order. That's right, 30% off your order now by using a line code at checkout over at honeblends.com. That's H-O-N-E-B-L-E-N-D-S dot com. Use a line code for 30% off. Have you ever climbed? You're from mountain places, right? You're a rock climber and all? Uh, I've done a little bit of rock climbing, but not anything crazy. Well, something very, very apparent in like bouldering, you know, which is like smaller, less than, you know, 10, 15 foot things, mm-hmm. no ropes or anything. I call them problems. Yeah. Different little like mini routes that you're taking. Uh-huh. You and your buddies can be working on a problem. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden somebody gets it and everybody gets it. Yeah. And it's like, like that, it's such an interesting thing how much of our lives is completely, the limitation really is, is our belief systems. And if you're able to hack that or, or you know, gain a relationship with that, then mm-hmm. it, 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 it's, it's pretty impressive what we're capable of doing. Yeah. And I wonder, if, do you have any specific, other than just doing really hard shit and continuing to, to, to push through it, do you have any kind of recommendations for a person to start to be able to open themselves up in that, in that like mental limitation way? Yeah. You know, that's a good question. Cause some of it I think is like, there's such a, I, I feel like it's so much more powerful to have the experience and it's really hard to like give someone the experience, right? Like they kind of have to go out and get it to some degree, but the way I'll do it with some, especially if they're new to the sport and I'm working with them is, 
kind of share examples like I did with you here about just like, you know, having that complete like variance in what my perception was from like one minute to the next. And I think just the more times you hear of people doing that, the more maybe normal you think it is, or you start asking yourself, well, if everyone's having these breakthroughs, I'll have mine, right? And then you kind of, I think it's more of a steer it towards optimism versus negativity type of a thing, right? If you can get someone to be optimistic, then the likelihood of them getting that experience is going to be much higher because they're going to, I don't want to say expect it, because sometimes if you expect it, then it kind of has a reverse effect where then when things start- You let down. Yeah, yeah. Things aren't working right and you're just like, you get frustrated and mad and that frustration and anger burning more mental energy again, and then you're less likely to be able to push through that point when you get to it. But I think maybe where it's probably grown in this sport the most is just better access to information. People are sharing their experiences more frequently. It's easier to do so. When I got into the sport a little over 10 years ago, it was just kind of on the upswing of popularity again. So we went from like, there's a couple people who write these like training reports and race reports to like, now there's dozens of podcasts, there's articles, there's some research coming into the sport and things like that. So people have just, I mean, just social media, even people have access to other folks, online coaching, people have access to people who've gone through, you know, decade plus of experience of kind of running into these situations and talking about how they pushed through at a time. So these these stories are more present and easier to find now too. So I think people have a little more a little more to lean on than than just like trial and error. <laughs> yeah. It's like a built in system to humanity for evolution. Yeah. Like it's like we're all in this thing together and then you have the internet and you start seeing people and yeah. you know, from across the world you're like, "Oh, okay, that's possible." Whereas mm-hmm. that didn't exist 30 years ago. Right. Which is pretty it's it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty interesting. I wonder I wonder how how do you explain that pain in the body that seemingly out of the blue out of nowhere can just disappear and turn into like bliss? Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting it's an interesting one. I think like some of it is your your brain is more or less aware that what you're doing is stupid. <laughs> like in running a hundred miles is when you think of it just from a like what is the point type of a thing? If the point is what value are you getting it from it as a person, but from a just a biological standpoint, like running a hundred miles as fast as you can is kind of a ridiculous endeavor. Like you might have to travel a hundred miles, but why would you be doing it as fast as you could to the point where the next two or three days, you're barely going to be able to move. There's just like not a whole lot of incentive to do that unless you're like fleeing for your life more or less. And in which case you're going to do whatever you got to do because the alternative is unacceptable to your your biological self. Right. And so I think like some of that is just like kind of self-preservation mechanisms kicking in. And then, you know, there's this flight and flight or fight response that I think if you can leverage and you can convince your brain that, yeah, I do have to keep going fast, then it's going to let you if it thinks like, okay, I guess we have to release. Yeah. And I think you see some of that too. And the where it gets interesting to maybe another layer of that is I haven't had these experiences yet. And I hope to eventually, I'm planning one actually is these longer haul type things where it isn't just like, I'm going to run half today or most of the day or all of the day, and then I'm going to stop and not run again for a little bit and then kind of slowly ease back into the process. But I'm going to run most of the day and get up and do it again, get up and do it. So this is going to be closer to the 3,100 mile event in New York, where I think they take like eight hours off a day or something like that. And then they get up and do it again, repeat and repeat is just this mindset of you have these stories that are pretty consistent from folks who do those really long haul type things like thousands of miles where they had kind of this gradual depreciation and they kind of hit this rock bottom and if they can 
survive that rock bottom, it actually starts kind of trending back up where, you know, all of a sudden that kind of linear depreciation that I thought was going to keep going and couldn't go anywhere but in that direction. Now all of a sudden it's trending back. Now all of a sudden I'm feeling a little bit better today than I was before when I was more miserable. It's just kind of like maybe a longer timeline, which just I think opens up a lot more interesting variables because you have even more opportunity to think about quitting. (laughs) Yeah. It seems like your body's always reasoning with you in Mm -hmm. a way. Yeah. You know, and so it's like, like animals, you know, if a zebra gets mauled by a lion, all of a sudden it gets endocrine system starts releasing all these endorphins and opiates. Essentially, it's like it can step outside of itself for a moment and look down like, wow. Yeah. You know, I've never been a zebra getting eaten by a lion. Thankfully, right? Yeah. yeah, (laughs) (laughs) But a lot of people have that. You Uh get in a car accident, you Mm -hmm. know, you get in any kind of situation, like your, 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 your brain, body, spirit, whatever the heck it is, it's always kind of working for you. You know, it's like there's a relationship there. And I think when you come to a a scenario where at first it sends you the signals that says, I think it would be a good idea if we stopped, Mm -hmm. go get a burrito, hang out, rest. And then once it gets the signal, it's like, oh, this motherfucker's not stopping. Uh-huh. Like, okay, well, how do we work? How do we get back on your team? Yeah. You know, it opens up this new, this new availability Uh that didn't exist before. Yeah, it is. It is like that. It's like, there's a point you have to there's a certain amount of discomfort you have to push through to get the buy-in from your next level or your next kind of potential there. And have you used psychedelics or anything like that, or do kind of like breath work stuff or any kind of weird weird things? I haven't done anything like that. I've done some breath work stuff, but not not a terrible amount of it. So just like basic breathing, like you know, in through your nose slowly, out through your mouth slowly, type stuff. But do that's you about do all. really hard things in your life outside of this, or is this just your one weird mile deep inch? wide thing that you do or is this a yeah. general tendency to how you do anything is how you do everything kind of thing yeah that's that's a good question i feel like my natural inclination is to take things that seriously but i'm aware that there's a finite amount of things you probably can mm. and that if you start pushing into something else to the level i mean because i've been doing this for so long now that there's a part of it where it's just like the time spent is so built up that to get to that point at something else is going to require me to pull back from this. So I do have things that I'm like really interested in that I'll spend a lot of time and attention. They tend to be somewhat like uh, complementary to to the running side of things. So things like coaching mm. or just learning about different training methodology and things like that, different processes within it. Things like nutrition, like what what nutritional approach is going to typically work best for the average person versus me as the individual and then with are there like signs or things that would indicate whether one would work better for someone else that I'm working with and things like that. I'm very passionate about kind of sharing my experience and learning what other people's about other people's experiences. So I think that's probably the thing that is maybe the most present at that level of like what do I do or what can I do to tell my story about kind of how my experience has gone. How does that relate to other people's and how does theirs differ? What can they learn from me? What can I learn from them? And that might just all be part of the same thing. Yeah. So maybe I am just one dimensional <laughs> with running. And before these just- before you, you, you were, you were teaching, you said you were, you were working with special, special needs kids or special interests or what's the, yeah. So I went to school. Like I, my, my goal originally wasn't to be an endurance athlete um, or a coach. Uh, my, my goal was to be a teacher, my career path originally. And I got a teaching license in uh, history and Broadfield Social Studies. And when I finished that and student taught, 
I did some substitute teaching. I graduated mid-school year, so I wasn't getting a full-time job right out the gate. So I subbed for a year and was subbing a lot in the special education classrooms. I just learned I really liked that, that kind of environment of that kind of small number student to teacher ratio. You can really see a lot more movement or growth from one student when you're working with fewer of them. Are these kids with like mental disabilities? These are like really smart kids. It was, it was a huge range. So it was a little bit of both. There was sometimes you'd get like the gifted and talented where it's like, how do we actually challenge the student to the degree at which they're going to like take it seriously to like cognitive disability where like, you know, their functional mental capacities were going to end at a very like early stage. And it's like, well, how do you find both uh, development for them within that framework from both like they're in the moment and as well as their future? Like what are they going to do once they get they're no longer in the school setting. And then everything in between, you'd have students that just have a learning disability that like made it less ideal for them to learn in the traditional manner. So it's like, how do we build an educational approach for them that's going to click in a way that can allow them to grow and reach their goals? To like emotional behavior disability, where it's like, here's this quote unquote smart kid who, you know, for whatever reason has issues with their, their emotional behavior and like their outbursts and things like that. And how do you, you know, set up a structure where they can kind of learn to control or navigate the, the world with, with what they're dealing with and things like that. And so it was a pretty wide range of stuff. I did the most probably in the, they kind of put them into like three categories, more or less. There is a cognitive disability. Uh, there's learning disability, which was just like this this student is has all the the tools to to reach like the levels we would expect them at their age, but they may just need a different approach. And the emotional behavior disability, I did more with emotional behavior disability and the learning disability students than uh, students with cognitive disabilities just over the I was only teaching for five years, so I didn't get a as much of uh, exposure to it as like someone who had been like a twenty year teaching veteran or something like that. What, what was it about that that was attractive to you? And why, why was that a fit for you? Teaching in general or with the special needs? Special needs. I think there's two big things. One was I wanted to feel like I could help someone who traditionally had been forgotten about. I don't know why that was a draw. Maybe it was just the experiences of seeing some of those students kind of succeed when they were not supposed to. That made me want to think like, well, how can I help a student who maybe wouldn't be able to get to that point? And the other part was kind of a little bit about what I said before. One thing I learned with teaching is, and this has gotten progressively worse as far as I can tell in terms of like the student-teacher ratio, where the typical classroom nowadays is probably like 30, maybe 40 kids to a teacher. And it's like, how much impact are you going to make on any one kid's life when you see them for 45 minutes, five days a week? in the context of 30 or 40 other students, you can lose a lot in that noise. And you probably do impact a lot of kids' lives in a big, meaningful way in some cases, but it's really hard to identify. You have a situation where, you know, I'm working specifically with this group of, say, 12 students across their entire education process, even if it's just for one year, you're going to really get to know that student. You're going to get to know their family. You're going to get to know like where their hurdles have been, where their successes have been at such a deeper level. It just felt like less of a surface level exposure to what I was doing and more of a deep dive, expo- or at least the opportunity to have that was much greater, in my opinion, with the department and the special education department. So there's There's an interesting trend with a lot of uh, endurance athletes that they have some kind of history or background with like addiction or mm. some kind of like mental yeah. type struggles. And oftentimes I think like the story that I have in that it's like a running away uh-huh. kind of thing. Yeah. Like, Oh, I just keep running. Like yeah. the demons come when I sit still. So I just keep on running. Like, yeah. well, now you're a pretty good athlete. Uh huh. 
Is any of that relate to you at all? And do you see that as something that does exist within that world? And if so, why do you think that it is? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it definitely does. And I think it is even probably more pronounced in ultra marathon. You see a lot of stories of folks who are like recovering alcoholics mm-hmm. or had an addiction to some drug or something like that, or even just an abusive relationship or something like that, where this thing that is, you know, nagging at me and I can't get it to stop, but I can replace it with something else and make it go away. And then, and running seems to fill that void for whatever like physiological reason. And I think sometimes that just draws you to doing more of it. So you're, it, to a degree, you're replacing one addiction with another addiction depending on kind of how you position it within your life. And there's probably healthy and unhealthy ways to do that as well. But I think it's it, it certainly stands out from just like anecdotal point for me, from when I just kind of look at the community at large. For me personally, I don't know that that was really ever, I mean, I may have more of an addictive personality than I'm aware of. <laughs> I clearly have some form of an addictive personality to do as much running as I do. But I don't know that it was necessarily, in my case, a replacement of something. I think it was more born out of just a curiosity where running, I think, was the first sport that I kind of noticed that I felt differently about than maybe my peers. I was like most kids where you got into sports, like I want to be good at this. And I had like a range of success depending at what level, you know, early on, you can, it's not too hard to be decent at a couple sports. You get into high school and college. Now all of a sudden you got to actually be good and disciplined usually in most cases to keep to keep pushing that button. Running was maybe the most clear point to continue that for me. My first experience with running was in sixth grade. We did the presidential fitness challenge. We did the mile. And I just remember like that one activity amongst all the other battery of like fitness tests stood out to me, not just because I won that particular race and it it wasn't spectacular. I had like seven classmates or something like that. It wasn't like I was beating everyone in the country or anything like that. But I I beat this like seven other kids and, but you know, half of them beat me in the V-sit reach and the shuttle run. So I was like, okay, that's done out. But the thing that really stood out was when we finished it, I looked at the other seven classmates of mine and none of them was happy about that experience. They were all like, I'm never doing that again, kind of a mentality. And I'm sure some of them probably ended up running in some shape or form with other experience. But for whatever reason, when I did that, I was excited because I finished in the head of my class, but I had fun doing it. So I was like, that was that was fun. I actually liked that. And it was like the, maybe my first experience of like a sport where I felt like I was the only one that had fun doing it. Whereas like if I played like basketball with my friends, more or less, we'd all have a good time. Obviously the the team that won at age 10 probably was happier at the end than the other team was, but we all were going to go out and play basketball again. So it was clearly motivating, but for whatever reason, running was a little different with that. And I didn't get into it very seriously though, until much later. Mm. So I think I probably have my parents to thank for that. They were just really open-minded about me doing a variety of different sports and they had already exposed me to a bunch of different ones. So I wasn't ready to just like give up everything for running at age 10. So it was part of the whole package until maybe my senior year in high school when I started kind of training year round and taking it a little more seriously. Yeah, But it's just been something I've been curious about since then. And I feel like it's been gradual enough that I've had the opportunity to continually find new reasons to be curious about it or to progress things that I've ultimately been always curious about. And I think some of that just has to do with, uh, it sounds weird because I'm an ultra marathoner. You think like all that running, but I, I took it quite slow to get to that point, in my opinion, compared to like what I saw with my peers that were really successful, say in like high school track and cross country and really successful at the collegiate level, where I felt like up until maybe even recently with ultra running, I always felt like, oh, they're doing more than I am. Or they 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 started that process a couple of years before I did. Yeah. And and that's kind of a 
an interesting, I think that's what's made me stick with it as long. It seems apparent that you and probably any athlete that's been doing at the highest level for a long time, they've adapted some, like Carol Dweck, call it the growth mindset. Uh Uh-huh. You know, where you can continually making it fun. You continue to like, yeah. you know, like you're enjoying the, the journey as opposed to the destination. Mm-hmm. That mindset is incredibly powerful. And so I wonder if there's a, if you were coaching someone and you kind of could see there's some foibles in their mindset. Is there any way to guide a person into that? Yeah, I think the starting point is you got to scale it to the individual. So when I think of the reason why I'm still doing what I'm doing, because if I had my same motivation to be running as I did three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, I would have quit by now. I would have moved on mm. to something else because it would have been just too monotonous, too same old thing, rinse and repeat. Right. There's too many other exciting things going on. And I am interested in other things that I every once in a while think like, you know, maybe it'd be fun to put a lot more energy into that since I'm instead of investing all of it into running. But I keep finding these reasons to stay with running. And I think it's because I think of it less about, um, more so now too than earlier in my career, about how do I stack up against such and such other runners or how do I compete amongst my peers and that sort of thing. I mean, that's a motivator, but ultimately like just as interested, if not more interested in just like, what is this experience going to bring me and where's the growth at the individual level or how has running positively impacted other areas of my life or what have I learned from running that I've been able to carry over into other areas of life that if I hadn't had that experience at the level I have with running, I wouldn't have just been able to really kind of like steer it in that way. So I think when you kind of look at it like that, and you have to position it, right? Because if someone's just getting new, it's hard to put them at a level of like, oh, you're going to learn these amazing life lessons, which you're going to be able to translate into business. You're going to be able to translate into relationships. And then you're going to be able to use that as a tool to be successful in such a wide variety of life that you can get like a paralysis by analysis type of a thing too. But starting pulling people back because the access to information and the social media and all the stuff that we have available like i mean we have you know what's the description now we have like the world history and all the information ever we can have in this tiny little like phone yeah. yeah right <laughs> which is incredible right that access also puts you in a position to you know like if when i was in 6th grade if i had looked at you know the top runners in the world and had access to them and how good they were compared to me I might have been like, well, why even bother? You know, I'm right. never going to be able to run a 345 mile. Like, <laughs> like, you know, my first mile was a seven and a half minute mile. If I would have known humans were running sub four minute miles consistently at the high level at that point, I may have never continued it because I might have thought to myself, what are the chances that I'm going to be running like literally twice as fast <laughs> in this? And, and I would have been too myopic. I would have been too tunnel visioned at that one distance because that was my exposure point. I wouldn't have even gotten to a point where I learned what an ultra marathon was. So I think pulling it back and asking someone like, well, let's let's think of like, what are the reasons to be doing this on the daily basis versus just whatever you want to get to, whether it be a race four months from now, whether it be, you know, like I want to just be able to do a certain distance in two years or something like that. I think those goals are great to have, but you also have to pare them down to very, very like acute day-to-day motivators so that they get that reward system built into the routine. Yep. That allows them to do the things they need to do to lay one brick at a time to get to the, the where they want to be, but also have each one of those bricks that they lay also reward them in some way that it keeps them wanting to lay the next one and the next one and the next one. Yep. So, I mean, that's that's something that I think I learned throughout my my process that 
put me in a position to where I'm still excited to do it today because I'm I still feel like I'm kind of laying rewarding bricks if you want to put it that way. So running a hundred miles or more than that or even you know or less than that is is essentially like the equivalent would be like going to the moon for a lot of people. Like it's undiscovered, it's uncharted territory. Mm-hmm. You know, so I wonder in those in that time as you're as you're you know going you're, you're eighty miles, ninety miles. What kind of conversations pop up in your head? Mm-hmm. Like, what's what's the self talk like? Yeah, do you ever have any like real hard conversations with yourself, or is it like frustration? Is there yeah. anger? Is like the whole palette of emotion? Is it just kind of machine keep going? It's it's interesting. The best I've heard it described is like it's like you're living a life in a condensed time frame, like of a day. So you get this like right. this like life worth of different emotional experiences all bundled up into this 100 mile effort. And I think that's one of the reasons why people kind of come back to it, even when they have like negative experiences or they don't get their end outcome that they were originally looking for was like, you just learn so much about yourself. Uh, you almost It's like almost like you learn a lifetime of, of yourself in a, such a condensed period. There's a lot of actual items if you're willing to pick from those that can, can tell you about things about yourself, things about your personality, where your strengths and weaknesses are. And if you can use that to build in, in both that and other areas of life, it can be a very powerful experience. Hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, I've had races where I've literally told myself like, why am I doing this? Like, why am <laughs> uh-huh. I here? Why don't I just stop now and never do this again? And I've had them where like, you know, that side of me wins and I quit early, you know, fail, quote unquote. So far, I've always looked back at that and been like, come back to say like, no, I'm not done here. I made it, you know, I I was weak mentally that day. I was weak physically that day. I, I did something wrong but I've always wanted to correct it and come back. So that's allowed me to have the experiences where you get to that point, you say that to yourself, but you're, but then you remember back to maybe the time it didn't go the way you wanted it to. And you say, okay, I'm back in this position where I've spent, you know, however long it was telling myself, yeah, you kind of wimped out there. <laughs> so yeah. like you kind of, you have to hold yourself accountable then. And I think that's kind of the cool part is you get these opportunities by coming back to kind of, course correct what you weren't able to for whatever reason that previous time Mm. so like when i think of some of my best races there are points where i look back at i get to a spot and i'm asking myself those questions why am i here is this worth it should i drop out and you know circle the wagon so to speak and try again another day and then i say well you know this is i've had this conversation with myself before and inevitably the next day i doubted whether it was the right decision so maybe i should try even for another 5 minutes or try for another 10 minutes or another mile or whatever it happens to be whatever you can kind of focus on to kind of keep yourself out there and then you you get to kind of some of that stuff we were talking about earlier in the conversation where now you hit a spot where you're like okay now i feel great i'm glad i did that and that gives you a little bit of confidence that if you get to that spot again later in the race you can it's like okay if it worked last time maybe it'll work again and you just you start to kind of spiral things things positive versus letting them spiral negative. And that's been the biggest takeaway, I think, with with especially the 100 mile distances, your mind can spiral negative very fast, but it can also spiral positive. And it's going to do whichever one you let it do in a lot of cases. Mm. So that's just where a little more experience, I think, helps out. For me, like when I ran 11 hours and 19 minutes for 100 miles in 2019, I had a couple spots that had I not other experiences in my life with these races, I wouldn't have been able to use them as tools to get to where I got that day. And a big one that stood out was mile 80 of that event. I had, I was on world record pace for the hundred miles in 2015. It's actually ahead of it enough where I didn't even have to run what was the current world record pace for the last 20 miles. So I was set up perfectly on paper. 
and like the wheels just kind of started coming off and I ran slow enough that last 20 miles where the world record slipped away. I still broke the American record. So it wasn't like a terrible situation by any stretch of the imagination, but my top end goal fell off. I knew that I had it right there, but I wasn't able to capitalize on it. So then in 2019, when I found myself at mile 80, had a world record pace again, I had that kind of missed opportunity in the back of my mind to motivate me to to think to myself like, okay, not only have I gone 80 miles today and I need to do these last 20 miles right in order to get the world record, but I also have years and years of time to reflect on why I didn't do it in 2015. And uh, it's you almost look at it through a completely different lens at that point because you're thinking to yourself, I put myself back in this position. I know what it's like not to achieve it. So am I willing to let go and have that happen again? Or am I going to capitalize this time? And you, I just don't know that you can have that thought process without the, the first experience. It's almost like part of the process, more or less. I'd like to discuss another company that I find great value in, referred to as Element. I personally find that a low-carb diet works best for my body, although most people embarking on a low-carb diet experience something generally referred to as the keto flu, which can cause fatigue, crankiness, decreased physical performance, cramping, and brain fog. It's not that pleasant. While it's a complex equation, electrolyte deficiency in folks adhering to a low-carb diet is in large part driven by two key factors. When you make the switch to a low-carb diet, you're probably eliminating processed foods from your diet, which contain high amounts of sodium. Low-carb diets are diuretic in nature, meaning the kidneys excrete electrolytes at a higher rate. This is normal and not something to be worried about, but it's important to replace these electrolytes. All is not lost, though. By properly supplementing your electrolytes, both your keto flu and low energy can dramatically be reduced, if not avoided altogether. If supplementing your electrolytes seems right for you, I highly suggest Element. I use Element exclusively because all their ingredients are real and recognizable. Plus, all their products are always sugar-free, gluten-free, paleo, keto-friendly, and science-backed. Plus, it contains three times the electrolytes as your average sports drink, which also contains a bunch of sugar and bullshit. And guess what? You can try Element out for free. You can receive a free Element sample pack including eight packets of Element, two citrus, two raspberry, two orange, and two raw unflavored by heading over to drinklmnt.com slash align. That's drink, D-R-I-N-K, the letters lmnt.com slash align. This deal is not available on your regular website, so go to drink, D-R-I-N-K, lmnt.com forward slash align, and you only pay five bucks for shipping, and you get that sweet sampler pack to try out. What's your training style throughout the week? Like, what is what is a typical week of training? Yeah, so I I might back out a little bit just to kind of lay it so it's understandable. Because like, if you pick just a random week out of my calendar year, you might have a week where I'm not running at all. Right. You might have a week where I run 200 miles or something like that. So it can be pretty polarizing. The way I do it is I always build specifically to the intensity and the course and the environment that I'm doing. So things that are specific to the intensity and the environment I'm going to be racing, and I'm going to be doing more of as I get closer to it. And things that are least specific but still important, I'm going to have them in my training plan, but they're going to be further away from the actual race. Hmm. So by the nature of 100 miles and the intensity of that, I'm doing kind of shorter, 
faster, like interval focus type stuff earlier in the training. Then I might transition into like longer intervals, what they call like tempo runs or for folks that aren't really endurance geeks, it's like an intensity that you could sustain for like 60 minutes if you were to evenly pace it, but get as far as you could in 60 minutes. So I'm focusing on developing that intensity. And then I'm taking like kind of another step towards, you know, what is the goal intensity for the specific distance? So if it's like a hundred miles, that tends to be what we would call like maybe like your zone two or your aerobic threshold is kind of a spot where I'm typically pretty close to during race day for 100 miles. So then I'm just building a lot of volume at that intensity and really preparing my body for the specifics I'm going to deal with that day. Any given week, I'll average probably about 100 miles per week of running over the course of the year when you add up all the, the days off and the big training days that are much bigger than the average. It may have like a couple short interval sessions in it, depending on what if I'm in that phase, it may have some long interval sessions, tempo runs in it, or maybe closer to the race where I'm running a lot lower intensity but more volume and building up like what, what I call very core specific things. So like that might look like a back-to-back long run where I run 30 miles on a Saturday and then 30 miles again on Sunday, all kind of that goal race intensity. And those are the ones that I really like to focus on because they give me that opportunity to really practice the specifics of race day, whether that be like the fueling, the nutrition, the pacing, whether it's going to be sustainable or not, like how accurate I'm in about my goal. And then also just like, I like to use those as kind of dress rehearsals for the end stage of a race. So if I'm doing a 30 mile long run, I try to visualize during that 30 mile long run that I'm starting at mile 70 of the race itself. And like, what do I want to be thinking about? How do I want to be processing this last 30 miles? So then when I get to that point at the race, I have in my mind, it feels like I've already done it versus it being like, oh, the last time I ran hundred miles was six months ago. So you're really kind of reaching to kind of pull from those experiences at that point. Mm. But if all your long runs are dress rehearsals for the last 20 or 30 miles of the race, then you get to the race itself and you've kind of already done the, at least the mental side of it to the point where you can have something to maybe lean on as 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 a way to kind of approach that stage of the race that's unreachable in training yeah so there's like the mathetone method Mm -hmm. and there's like the pose method what is the bitter method (laughs) like if you were to encapsulate something that differentiates your approach which Uh is you know the best in the world in 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 specific things whoever who was the guy that beat your record recently yeah so um yeah my record got broken april i ran 11 hours 19 minutes in 2019 and Alex Sorkin ran 11 hours, 14 minutes and 56 uh, seconds in April of this year. The way I like to look at that is like I moved the bar a little bit for the sport in that particular discipline. And then he moved a little bit further and we're both young enough and there'll be other people come in who hopefully we can move that bar to under 11 hours in the next couple of years. So I think that'd be kind of a cool piece to the ultra running kind of like trajectory to see that sub 11 hour. So when that happens, are you like, oh shit, there was a point in my, this is where I find this, my whole experience with the sport really interesting, actually, like had I broken the world record in 2015, when I was talking about being on pace at 80 miles, I think had I done it then it wouldn't have been in my best interest from just a long-term standpoint or just uh, like a, a good way. Maybe I would have learned along the way. It would have just been post but if I would have broken in 2015, I think I would have been just constantly thinking about who's going to break my record or how mm-hmm. do I lower it further so it's less reachable. By the time, I think that maybe it was the time spent between that particular race and when I finally did break it in 2019, in that time frame, I, my goals or my like view or my whys shifted a little bit differently to where when I was honest with myself, I knew that 
really all I can give is what I can give. So my goal has to be how fast can I run a hundred miles and whatever that ends up being is what it is. And I need to find fulfillment within that hmm. because regardless of how fast I run a hundred miles, I could go out and run a hundred miles in 10 hours and 50 minutes tomorrow. There'll be a point in my life where someone runs it in under 10 hours and 50 minutes. So there's gonna be a point where I have to let that go. So if I'm not ready to do that, then I'm going to live every day wondering when it's going to happen. I'm going to be holding on to this thing or I'm going to be having this like kind of mental warfare with myself about trying to hold on to something that's not technically even mine. It's like, it's mine now, but ultimately I'm just a stepping stone of where we'll finally get wherever the end point in human powered performance, you know, at some point, maybe as a society, we'll decide that that's no longer important to us and, and, uh, and no one will care anymore. But along that timeline, there's going to be people that go faster than me. And so I'm ultimately, I'm just going to be kind of pushing it in the right direction for whatever period of time that happens to be. And that's got to be what the motivation is. And then what everything I learn about myself and about the sport and everything along the way are the real important things. So when Sorkin broke it, I was, I was very happy for him. And I was very happy that you know he also contributed to that, bringing us closer to sub 11 hour, 100 mile. Um, you know, I, I definitely competitive. So I'm glad he did it when I'm still 35. So I have a chance to try to break it again and, and see if I can re-contribute. But, but, you know, when I ran 1119, my mind went to, I wonder if I can go under 11 hours. So to a degree, I think I've been honest with myself in the sense that if I run a hundred mile race and I feel like, okay, it's not getting better than that, then it's time to start focusing on something else, whether it's a different ultra marathon type of activity or a different thing altogether. That'll be the point where, you know, I feel like I've achieved what, what is meaningful for me to kind of keep targeting that as a goal of mine. But since my mind went to, I think I can maybe go under 11 hours, that has kind of been more of like a sign to me anyway, that I'm, I'm, I still want to take a few cracks at it. Whether I actually can do it or not is the question mark. I think I'm content where if, if I don't ever run faster than I did in 2019, I won't be disappointed in myself. It'll just be like, well, I answered that question. That was as fast as I could go. And uh, now now what what's next in life? Kind of a, an exploratory thing. Final question. What is the, the differentiation of the, of the bitter method? So for training, my kind of philosophy is most specific as you get closer to the race, least specific earlier. So working on your weaknesses and like higher intensity stuff that is going to still be valuable in like raising your aerobic capacity. Hmm. Uh, when you get to that part of the development process earlier and kind of transitioning in. So it's a periodized in that sense. I mean, if we think of like the Maffetone method that you mentioned, like that's kind of a little more uniform across the board where you're, you're doing a lot of the similar things. You're watching that development of that system kind of continually progress. Whereas I'm going to be introducing a few different variety pieces in there with like the short intervals and stuff. And there's some of that with Maffetone too, like they might implement some strides if you start to plateau or he'll have you start doing races uh, to kind of like push that needle, whereas I'd maybe just do that more structured in the training program. Maybe something else that's a little unique is I try not to overthink, this is exactly how I need to do this because it worked before or it worked for someone else. I'm more intuitive in the sense that if I do something and it stressed my body to the point where I need to take some recovery to bounce back from that. It doesn't matter if that was two miles less than the previous time, or it doesn't matter if it was two miles more than the previous time. You know, I need to kind of match that work recovery, work recovery, work recovery thing at the in the moment versus what I expect it to be. So there's this what do I think I need to do to get a stress response that's just enough to make progress, not so much that I'm taking future training off the table. 
And then what recovery do I need to bounce back from that? That's going to be very in the moment and very like you have to kind of decide that maybe even when you wake up the next morning versus knowing ahead of time. So being open enough, I think maybe the way to describe it is thinking of my approach as a scaffolding and then how you fill in that scaffolding is going to be very much how the other variables that are around you impact the things that are going to get you to where you want to be. And those are going to change from one training block to the next. Yep. Um, the nutrition side is probably a little more unique, I would say, than the training approach for me, especially in the endurance world, less so in the ultra marathon running world because ultra running is a lot slower by the nature of the length, but I follow a low carbohydrate diet. So the easiest way for people to understand it kind of in a brief moment, if you think of just like what the average person's probably eating from ratios of fats to proteins to carbohydrates, my fats and carbohydrates are kind of flipped. So most endurance athletes are probably gonna be eating like 60, 70, maybe even 80% of their diet from carbohydrates. Mine are gonna come from fats in that kind of percentage range. And then my carbohydrates are gonna be in off season, sometimes as low as like what you'd call like a strict ketogenic diet, where I'm eating very few, if any, carbohydrates and mostly almost all fats and proteins. And you know, then my higher training weeks and volume, I'm having more of everything, obviously, but I'll let my carbohydrate percentages come up to closer to like, say 20% and on some occasions, even 30% of the intake. And that's going to be a little different. Most people are still going to follow like a moderate to high carbohydrate diet, even in ultra marathoning. There's definitely more interest in kind of the fueling strategy that I do since I started doing it. And other people have played around with it and found it to work well for them for, for whatever reason. So that's maybe another kind of piece to the bitter method. The bitter method. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah. But I would say like there's other piece to it too, whereas, you know, I'm, I'm me as the athlete, but I'm also me as the coach. So there's also this, uh, there's a process when you're working with someone else where you have to be very careful, especially in ultra marathon running. Cause we, we have a lot more anecdotes than we do concrete research in this sport both nutritionally and training wise. So it can be very easy to say, well, that worked for me, then I'm just going to prescribe it to this hundred different people. And they're going to have the same success to that same rate I did. Whereas like, that's one thing I've really learned a lot about with the sport, I think too, is like, you know, I might be working with someone and we might think like, okay, maybe a low carbohydrate approach is going to work great for you. And we start out with that. And then as we start playing around with that approach, we find out that moderate carbohydrate works better for them. It works the other direction too. Sometimes I'll, I'll have like an athlete who's really interested in low carbohydrate so much so that they want to kind of take it out at a higher degree than I do. And I'll be like, okay, well, I'm going to give you this set of workouts and we'll see how you do with that hyper low amount of carbohydrates. And then they go out and nail the workout. And I'm like, well, (laughs) I would have wanted a little more, I guess, but for whatever reason, they were able to do what we wanted to do in the workout standpoint and and do fine with it. So that's the flexibility side to the diet too, where I think you can go in with a scaffolding or like, here's the pros and cons to either these approaches. Let's see which one matches your needs the best. But ultimately we have to put into practice and make changes along the way as they present themselves in terms of getting you to where you want to be versus sticking to something that's not going to work and kind of set you back. Yep, flexibility. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, this is a blast. I'm glad we were able to put this yeah, together. I, mean, yeah, I came here to to get my ankle worked on and hang out with Justin <laughs> and do his podcast, and I, I got to come on yours as well. So it's like, and so for folks listening, I mean, it's kind of ridiculous that you're actually an accessible resource for people that want to learn and want to be coached and want to be to to strengthen their running or endurance, or people can actually learn from you. Yeah, one thing I've tried to be consistent with. And I'm probably much better at it now that I know more is when I quit teaching, it was the hardest decision of my life. I was at a great setup for me personally. Ultimately, I chose to pursue my running career and that side of things because it's just such a tight window. Like I, there'll be a 
day where I'm just too old to be competitive and there'll be younger, faster guys in the sport. And I can go back to teaching if I want to then. So to me at that point, it was like, I kind of have to do this or I'll be asking what if, but you know, one thing I learned early and I continue to learn is there's ways to educate or there's ways to share. Um, As a teacher, I liked it much better when I felt like I wasn't this overseeing kind of like head of the class. You listen to me, I tell you, and that's right type of an attitude, more of a, I'm here to facilitate the educational process. So you come to me when you're curious and I will share as much as I can about how to learn about a specific thing. And if I have information to share with you that will help you, great. If not, we will find a way for you to find it. Yep. And that's something I've tried to continue to do just maybe in a little bit of a different arena with like the running community and specifically the ultra marathon community. So yeah, folks uh, can reach out to me at zachbitter.com. That's kind of where my, most of my like stuff is kind of located. Amazing. Well, thank you. You got to get on a, on a jet plane and go back. Head back to the heat in Phoenix. I think. Thank you so much. I greatly appreciate this. Thank you all for tuning in and uh, over now. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. If you did, you can tag myself over at Align Podcast. You can also tag Zach Bitter over at Zach Bitter, spelled Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R. I so greatly appreciate you guys tuning in for these episodes. I greatly appreciate your reviews, telling your friends, integrating any of this stuff into your own life. I hope it is making a difference for you. I know that it has for me. And forward to next week's beautiful conversation. Hope you have an exceptional week and uh, I'll see you soon.